to John 11. We're going to wrap up John 11 today. Uh, if you want to turn there. Uh, what I can't remember, Amy, is... Uh, do I have kids on Saturday? Is that your training? Oh, okay. So I'm free to serve wherever. All right. Okay. wasn't sure if kids were available at the... or welcome at the work site. So. Yeah. We'll talk later. <laughs> All right. John 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, uh, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would send the same Holy Spirit who inspired this word to come to open our hearts to its truth. Please remove from us apathy, cynicism, callousness, familiarity, rebellion, so that we may really be hungry for this bread of life that feeds our souls, nourishes our hearts uh, for your work, and fills us with the joy that is our strength. This we ask for the honor and glory of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you know me, you know that I am not, generally speaking, a fan of musicals. Okay? I do not live for musicals. I do not normally walk around singing show tunes in any way, shape, or form. But if you know me, you also know that there are a few specially chosen ones that I do like. And lately I've been walking around singing some of those songs, as those of you in Sunday school realized. I, of course, as a teenager, had a deep and abiding love for Deep Purple. And so because of that 
fascination with that band when I learned that Ian Gillen, the lead singer, had been in the stage production of Jesus Christ Superstar, I had to check it out. And so that became, so to speak, on the heavy rotation because of the vocals and as well as the guitar in that particular uh, rock opera. See, if I'm going to listen to a, an opera, it helps that rock is part of the name. Okay. <laughs> Not a source of sound theology. Okay? Not. But as a young teenager, I found it very interesting. And the Easter weekend, I was flipping the channels a little bit, and on the Access channel, they had the movie production, which I never liked anyway. But I thought I'd listen along. It was amazing how many of those songs I remembered, the lyrics to. It's frightening, actually. Um, Because I hadn't listened to it in years because I had it on vinyl. Who has vinyl anymore? I don't. So I don't have access to it anymore. So one of the songs that's key in Jesus Christ Superstar is taken, is taken almost word for word from this passage this morning. And that song is, This Jesus Must Die. The big idea this morning is that Jesus had to die in order to gather the children of God. So we're going to work with that this morning we're going to, as we work through this passage. But I want us to start with this uh, contrasting notion, so to speak, that the works of Christ work faith and fear. Therefore is a very popular word in this text, and it starts off with the, this word, therefore, because it's all connected to the, the raising of Lazarus. It begins this chain of events that's going to unfold in what we see here in chapter 11. That is sort of the key event that triggers what we're going to see. And the raising of Lazarus really has two kind of equal and opposite reactions. On the one hand, some respond in faith. But on the other hand, some respond with fear. The people who were there who were mourning the death of Lazarus, saw and heard the same exact things. But they responded to them in very different ways. This reminds me of what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Meaning that among those who are perishing, we are a stench. But to those who are receiving life, we are a beautiful fragrance, like when the wind blows over those spring flowers before the you know allergens get to your nose. Okay? That's what's going on here. The raising of Lazarus is, in a sense, a stench in the nostrils of some and a beautiful fragrance in the nostrils of others. And so we see that, therefore, many believed in or into Christ. Okay, In this case, there's no follow-up negative assessment of their faith. Jesus is not challenging their faith. And so we can imply, I think, apply from this that their faith is a sound faith. They're resting in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. They're placing their hope in Him. But the flip side 
is that some of them not only didn't believe, but went to the Pharisees to tell them what Jesus had done. They're going to report what they've seen there at the tomb side of Lazarus. These people, I think, were also afraid of Jesus' influence. We then hit another therefore. Therefore, raising Lazarus results in the Sanhedrin meeting. Now, most of us aren't very familiar with the Sanhedrin. There's none today. It's not something that we normally think about. But it was basically the ruling council in Jerusalem for the Jews. Rome had conquered, and uh, of course Pilate was uh, over that region. Okay, But what they often did in the places they conquered is they permitted the people to have some measure of freedom. You had to obey Roman law, but there were some certain domestic issues that they allowed you to have your own control over, like religious issues. And so the Sanhedrin was permitted to exist to rule over those matters that were particular to Jerusalem, in Israel. And so the Sanhedrin was led by the chief, the high priest, and then there were 70 additional elders that made up the council of the Sanhedrin. Now, when we talk about the the high priest here, we have to uh forget what you've learned in the Old Testament. Okay? It was not annually, you know, there was not a, a lot that was cast every year, but thanks to the goodness of the Greeks and then the Romans, it was actually more of a political position. I mean, they still did the high priestly stuff, but how you got to be high priest had nothing to do with really your lineage, aside from whether or not you were connected and could bribe them enough money. It was basically a uh, position that had so much influence that people were being bought off to get that position. And it was usually someone appointed uh, by the king, Herod appointed a number. At one point he went through three in one year, but we'll see a little more. The council of elders was made up of some who were Pharisees, the conservatives of the day, and some who were Sadducees, who don't really fit into the category of liberal. I mean, they denied certain things, but they were in some ways sort of like the Samaritans. They considered themselves people of the old book. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection, which we find more consistently attested to in the prophets and not in the first five books. Okay. They're vying for power, as you might imagine. Okay. They didn't agree on a whole lot, and so they struggled for power. That's what entitlement and pride does. Okay? It struggles for power. But here comes Jesus. And he threatens everything. Jesus is, in a sense, a very destabilizing force. If we put it in our own political terms, and remember, I'm just using this for points of illustration. I'm not telling you how to vote or anything like that. Okay? But you've got the Democrats and Republicans vying for power within our country. And then comes the Tea Party, hated by the establishment of both the Republicans and the Democrats. That's similar to what's happening here. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't like Jesus, and they want to do something to get rid of him. They don't know how to stop him and stop his influence. Now, 
John mentions that they're doing this despite the fact that they acknowledge he performs many signs. They're not questioning the validity of his signs. They wouldn't say, well, Lazarus really didn't get raised from the dead. They seem to acknowledge the fact that Lazarus was, was possibly or probably raised from the dead. That's not the issue for them. They refuse to believe, and therefore they reject the Messiah. As A.W. Pink notes, they owned the genuineness of his miracles, yet were their consciences unmoved. Such was the hardness of their hearts. They affirm the reality of the signs, but they reject the meaning of those signs. They reject the possibility that Christ is the, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. What they could have done, which they probably should have done, so to speak, thinking as uh, a first century Jew might think, that Jesus was trying to lead people astray to worship a false god. And, and I could see them trying to convict Jesus of that crime and therefore having him put to death, but that doesn't seem to enter the picture here. What seems to enter the picture is that Jesus is threatening the status quo that they are committed to. He is threatening their position. He is threatening their power. He's threatening their comfort, their security. They say, everyone will believe in him. They feared that the people would believe that he is the Messiah and therefore would try to make him king. And so this is largely about power. Power they have and they don't want to let go of. It is their pride. It is their fear that is at work here. They don't want something to happen that will catch the attention of Rome. Because they don't want Rome to see a rebellion in the midst of Jerusalem and Judea and therefore to send the armies to crush them. Hardly enough in the Greek, it seems to indicate to me, take us away and our place and our nation. They're fearful that the temple would be destroyed, that their nation would be decimated, and that people would maybe be sent off into exile, but certainly they, the ruling council, would pay a price for what happened under their watch. And so... Though they didn't say it this way, it's just like the rulers and the elders in this Jesus must die. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. And they're right. Jesus threatens the status quo of everybody's life. Okay? Let's not make Jesus into some sort of... Uh, non-threatening individual. He threatens everybody's status quo. He is dangerous. Faith receives Jesus and his works, but fear runs from Jesus, seeking to destroy him. So secondly, let's look at that aspect of this. 
It was better for Jesus to die than for us, us to perish. And so this council is called, and they represent this in, in the play by, Dear Caiaphas, the council waits for you. That's as much singing as you're going to get out of me, I think. Okay, Caiaphas was the man, so to speak. He was the high priest. And John's language there is a little confusing because it seems to indicate he was just the priest that year. Well, it's probably more the idea of in this year he was high priest because Caiaphas was actually high priest for 18 years. He held the position from uh, 18 to 36 A.D. His father-in-law, Annas, had been a previous high priest. So this was He's in a connected family with lots of money, lots of power and influence, and he didn't do anything to make the Romans mad. So he stayed in power for 18 years. Oddly enough, he would be deposed from his position by the Romans the same year that Pilate was deposed in 36. Okay, So this is sort of one of those things that kind of closely joins them. But he's frustrated with the weakness and apparent indecision of the Sanhedrin where Jesus is concerned. They're sort of like, what are we going to do? And he says, you guys don't have a clue. And then he speaks the words. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. He comes up with the final solution to their problem so to speak. And when uh, Weber and Rice put these words into uh, Caiaphas's mouth, it sounds familiar here, I see blood and destruction, our elimination because of one man, blood and destruction because of one man, like Jesus, uh, sorry, like John before him, this Jesus must die. And so begins the refrain, this Jesus must die. His logic is that if we don't kill Jesus, the Romans will kill the entire nation. And so he wants to make Jesus something of a scapegoat, similar to what we find in Leviticus when it talks about the Day of Atonement. There's one goat that, you know, uh, dies for sins, and another that they're placed upon and is brought out into the wilderness and let go to wander and presumably to die. The scapegoat. They want to make Jesus a scapegoat for all the problems that are existing within their nation for fear that the Romans will make them all pay. Then John tells us something that should astound us. He says that because he was the high priest, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Meaning... It's not just Caiaphas who speaks. But as we see in 2 Peter 2, that the Holy Spirit was also speaking through Caiaphas. That this did not originate in and of himself. Now, he met something very different by it, but the Holy Spirit was also speaking far more than Caiaphas did. Caiaphas is about protecting our position. The Spirit is speaking about the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. A very different understanding of what goes on. 
And if you might think, why would God speak through a godless man like Caiaphas? I ask you to remember Balaam. Remember him from Numbers, the diviner for hire, so to speak, that Balak went and got, trying to get him to curse the Israelites on the plains of Moab. And Balak, at some at one point, answers Balak, says, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? You see, Balak wanted him to curse, and all that Balaam did was bless the Israelites. Because God was at work. So here we have a similar situation where Caiaphas is speaking something that he means one thing by it, God means something else by it. So, God speaks through wicked men. God's meaning is different. He means that Jesus is going to save them by his death from God's wrath, not Rome's wrath. You see, Caiaphas' solution ultimately did not keep them safe from the wrath of Rome. And even worse, it did not keep unbelieving Israel safe from the wrath of God through Rome. In one generation, the Roman armies would come and flatten Jerusalem because of their rejection of the Messiah, because of their long-standing disobedience and the killing of many prophets, including Christ. So, Jerusalem, the temple, and all those unbelieving Jews would not escape God's wrath because they did not seek refuge in the Lamb of God. Apart from Jesus' death in our place, we too would perish as condemned sinners. We don't have a a reason to look down on them. We were essentially in the same boat as them, rebels to the core. So there was only one solution to the problem as Caiaphas saw it, the death of Jesus. There's only one solution to the problem as God sees it, the death of his beloved son for the salvation of sinners. And we see that the purpose of this, according to John, was to gather into one the children of God who are now scattered abroad. It's easy to think that what he's talking about in terms of those who are scattered abroad, it would be Israelites who were part of the the dispersion, who were in other parts of the world. But I don't think that's how we ought to look at it. For two reasons. One, what we saw in John 10. Okay? That there are sheep who are not of this fold, and I will bring them together with, into one flock. Okay? There's this one. We're, he's gathering, together, gathering these children together as one family. I think it parallels the one flock of John chapter 10. Not only that, but we see in Acts chapter 18, uh, when Paul is outside of Corinth... He's afraid to go in, and, the, and God shows up to him in a vision one night, and he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
Not people who believed in him yet, but people who would believe in him. They had already been given by the Father to the Son. And now's the time when they're going to come to faith through the preaching of Paul. They're going to be gathered together into that one flock, gathered in together into that one family. Okay, That's why Jesus died. And so we see, as Leon Morris notes, that sin tends to scatter men. Salvation in Christ brings them back together. That's why you have all that language in the New Testament. One new temple, a living temple. One body, one bride, one people, one nation. In Christ. In Christ. So Jesus must die, but so that God can gather his people together in one family for which he is the Father. So in order that people would, his people would not perish in their sin, it was better that Jesus would die. Thirdly, faith and fear might appear to be the opposite on the surface. You see, on the one hand, we have those who are the, the council, the Sanhedrin. They're living in fear. They make plans to put him to death. They receive the council of Caiaphas, and they begin to act upon it. Okay? But, but see, that wasn't all they did. Passover is coming. And so they, with the rest of the people, would purify themselves. The Jews who were going to celebrate Passover would go into Jerusalem uh, a week early, and they would undergo the, the ceremonial purification rites. That would be a whole week. Kind of hard for us to kind of think of that, uh, you know, taking a week to get purified. Thankfully, Christ is our purification. We don't need to worry about this. But they did at that administration of the covenant of grace. So at the same time that they're purifying themselves, they are also planning the death of Jesus, and they are searching for Jesus in order to arrest him so they might kill him. And so to those outside the council, to ordinary people, they would look holy, righteous, and acting in faith. But in reality... They're living in fear, they're living in unbelief, and they're polluting themselves with plots of murder. Fear sometimes looks like faith, but when it does, when it does it's hypocrisy. I was a young Christian when Jimmy Swaggart had his fall. On the one hand, I was not a Jimmy Swagger fan, so. But he was very popular. And typically, sexual immorality, one of his targets. Boom, boom, going after that. Well, he gets caught committing sexual immorality. Hypocrisy. That's the Sanhedrin. Hypocrites. 
claiming to be the upholders of the law while they are going to break it by murdering an innocent man. So sometimes fear looks like faith. There's another therefore. Because of the the counsel, therefore, Jesus withdrew. He discovered the truth, and perhaps it's because of one of those men who came to believe in him, either Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. They may have said, oh, got word to him, by the way, Jesus, they're looking to kill you. And Jesus withdraws to Ephraim. Now, this is not the capital of the northern kingdom from, you know, Uh, before 722 B.C. This is a small town about 15 miles away on the edge of the wilderness. And so Jesus goes to this relatively anonymous place. And you know what? If you just observe this, you'd go, fear. That Jesus guy, he's acting in fear. He knows they're going to kill him, and so he runs away. And your surmise would be wrong. He's acting in faith. His time, his hour had not come yet. He's withdrawing until that time. And then he will show up at the appointed hour to meet his death on the behalf of sinners. He is acting in faith, even though it looks like he's acting in fear. Do you understand? That's the danger of making a very superficial assessment. I made one this week. I thought the guy who was calling to yell at me because of the water that had uh, come out of the pipe was the other neighbor who was threatening to sue us, you know. And so I said, you have his number. And then he got upset at me again. I, I, I just called you today. It was a different neighbor. I made a false assumption. thought... A neighbor's mad at us. Must be the same guy. That was wrong. <laughs> Pray for us and our relationship with our neighbors. Okay? Pray for us. We want, we want to love them well. Okay? And there's things going on that we're not in control of, but nonetheless have created some animosity there. Okay. Enough of that. So, as I'm... As I was thinking about this, and particularly, you know, the response of the Sanhedrin to what's going on, I, I think of our own cultural climate today, where we as the church um, are tempted to live in fear with the changes that are going on. You see, the status quo is changing, okay? And we're going to experience temptations. And uh, one of my old friends wrote, a chapter in uh, a book in honor of Dr. Pratt, and she mentioned uh, one of many of his adages, and one of them was, balance is momentary synchronicity. And Dr. Pratt realized and wanted us to remember that the deck is always shifting. I used to ride the green line a lot in Boston, the subway, and I would, unless it was packed, I used to like not grab onto the poles or anything and hold the straps. And I still do this when I can on the, the, the monorail at Orlando's International Airport. But you kind of like, you ride it like a surfboarder almost. You're trying to shift your weight so that you're, you know, it's good, to, it's good for you, right, Jack? You gotta, gotta keep that balance, right? Okay? You can't just stay rigid because if you do, you're gonna fall over. You have to move 
with the train. Life is like that. There's an element in which you have to move with the, with the changing circumstances of life. And yet, what we try to do is typically we try to either resist or react. Okay? To resist is that idea of fighting change. And usually it's rooted uh, in pride, but also can be rooted in fear. Okay? To fight that change with everything you've got. That's what the Sanhedrin was doing. Things were changing. God was working. There's going to be a new equilibrium, but they wanted to keep the old equilibrium, and so they decided Jesus must die. And as we experience the cultural changes that are going on around us, our temptation is to, out of fear and pride, fight like the Dickens, whatever that means. I never understood that phrase. But to fight with all that we are, to write letters and make protests and do all of this kind of stuff and basically become obnoxious, I think. We're tempted because we're afraid. And instead of turning to Jesus in our fears, we try to, ex- we try to regain control of the social climate. If we just elect the right guy or woman, everything will be okay. No, it won't. Another response is react. And what I mean by that is a, a typically an emotionally driven response. When you're driven by fear, and that's basically it comes out. When the whole Indiana thing was going on, I interacted with a friend of Matt's who's an atheist. And one of the takeaways from that that kind of stood out to me was, which I thought was completely laughable, but this is her perspective. She's afraid of the church influencing politics. Where has she been? Okay, but that's their fear. To which I said, do Christians have a right to influence politics? Or is it just secularists that have a right to influence politics? Because George Soros is throwing money out there too. Okay, not just the Mormons. All right. But we can be driven by fear. And usually when we're driven by fear, we become irrational and angry. At anybody and anything. Now, there's a third response to receive, to recognize that there are circumstances that are beyond your control. You and I, we can't do anything about how the state def- decides to define marriage, for instance. We can't do anything about it. Doesn't mean we forfeit our values doesn't mean that we change our definition of what marriage is, but we can't change how they think about marriage unless we do a whole lot of evangelism, brothers and sisters. Okay? We have to find the new equilibrium. If you don't find the new equilibrium, you know, the, the, you know, the balance, the, 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 the momentary synchronicity, you fall on your bottom or your face. Neither one is pretty. 
We're not to call to live in some culture of our own imaginations. We're called to live in the one God places us in. And so this connects with what we talked about last week. Okay. I think it really does. We don't want to walk in the way of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We want to walk in the way of Jesus who knew who he was and was not afraid. He knew who his father was and he was not afraid. He knew what his future was, which included dying upon the cross, and he was not afraid. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to live in fear. You know who your father is. You know from Scripture who you are in Christ. You know what the future is. Big picture. And you know that might include some suffering for you. So, you can't control it. You're supposed to ride the wave of God's providence in faith, hope, and love. So, hopefully that's not too distracting, I think, from... uh, the notion that Jesus must die. The raising of Lazarus was well known, and it set in motion this series of events that would result in the death of Jesus. Some came to believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Others feared that Jesus would upset the status quo and bring the wrath of the Romans. And Jesus does upset the status quo to create a new and better status quo not one that is grounded in fear and pride, but one that is rooted in faith, hope, and love. But to do so, in order to gather us together, it was necessary that Jesus would die to satisfy the wrath of God due to our sin. And so, in doing that, Jesus also sets us free from our typical responses of pride and fear so that we can respond in faith in the midst of changing circumstances. Let's pray. Father, um, a lot of people here have changing circumstances. The Matthew's circumstances are about to change as uh, Sharon is pregnant. The Fitzsimmons is changing already and they're going to bring another uh, young boy back here. Those aren't the only circumstances that are changing. Some of us have work circumstances that are changing and kids that are growing up and ready to leave the house. And those are circumstances that are changing. Now be with us in those things. Help us to remember that you are the Lord of not just history on a macro level, but our personal history. And to remember that you have gathered us together into one body because Christ has died to accomplish that. And the same Jesus that had to die is the Jesus that rose again for us and has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Help us to trust this Jesus who died with all of our lives, with all of our circumstances. Work by your Spirit uh, to produce that heart of trust in you. 
because it cannot arise from ourselves. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.